The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here's your top five at five. Stocks keeping their momentum going in the final trading days of 2020, hitting new highs and futures suggesting the gains will continue today. The House signing off on a plan to put more money in Americans' pockets, putting the fate of a stimulus check bump in the Senate's hands. We're live in Washington with the latest. The shares of Alibaba on the rebound after China's crackdown on the tech giant, raising new concerns about what's next for the country's technology sector. A landmark day for Boeing as the company's 737 MAX jet prepares to take off again. What the plane's return could mean for the company's battered stock. And the unexpected boost the pandemic has provided to sports trading cards, yes, finding themselves once again in high demand. It is Tuesday, December 29th, 2020, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Two days away till the new year. Good morning, everyone. I'm Seema Modi in for Brian Sullivan. Here's how your money and global markets are setting up their day. Futures right now were indicated for a higher open after yesterday's monster rally. Dow Jones currently up 170 in pre-market trade. Nasdaq higher by 55. Yesterday, we did see that rally kick off the final trading week of the year. The Dow, S&P 500, Nasdaq all climbing to fresh record highs with all three. Now trading about half to 1% higher in yesterday's trade. Shares of mega cap technology and internet companies leading the charge and extending their gains for the year, including one stock you know also well, Apple, rising more than 3.5% to close at its new all-time high. Though short of reaching an intraday record, the stock has risen more than 85% this year, and it's actually poised to close out its second straight annual gain above 80%. It's been a winning stock. But let's go worldwide now. Jumana Bersetchi is live in London, the newsroom there, where stocks in Europe are actually rising for the fifth consecutive session. Jumana. Morning, Seema. Yeah, very positive session for European markets today. Building on some of the positive sentiment we had yesterday, worth bearing in mind that today the FTSE 100 is open for the first day of trading since that Brexit deal was agreed on Christmas Eve. So seeing a very strong performance there with that index up 2.6%. And so in terms of sectors, though, we're seeing a big outperformance in the media space. Uh, that particular sector is doing very well this morning, as well as in the travel and airlines Hospitality is doing quite well. This coincides with the rollout of the mass vaccination inoculations that are going on on the European continent. Those started just a few days ago, so helping to give a bit of a boost to that particular sector. On the downside, however, we are seeing banks lag a little, particularly some of the UK banks. Bit of a surprise there. You would have thought on a Brexit deal, UK banks would be doing better. Not so much the case today. We've got Barclays, Lloyds, uh, some of the domestic focus banks down anything from 2 to 3%. And just uh, one stock in particular I want to draw your attention to is AstraZeneca. Now, 
today or tomorrow could be a very big day for that the pharmaceutical company. We are expected to hear from the UK uh, official medical approval agency. They should be giving the green light for the AstraZeneca University of Oxford vaccination to go ahead. And on the back of that, we are seeing very strong performance in that stock, up about 5% in anticipation of that approval. Could be a very big event, and not just for the UK, but for Europe in general, and also for the developing world, given how many of them have pre-ordered inoculations from that particular vaccine. So all in all, a good positive start to the trading session for us, Sima. Yeah, AstraZeneca up 4.6% in today's trade. Jumana, thanks. Now to some of the morning stories right now on our radar and one company looking to go public. Qualtrics has filed its paperwork for an IPO. The cloud software vendor initially pricing its shares at $20 to $24. That would value the company between $12 and nearly $14.5 billion. That would be up from the $8 billion SAP paid for the company two years ago ahead of its IPO, its first IPO attempt. Now, in July, SAP announced its plans to spin out Qualtrics while keeping most of its ownership at least for a while. Meanwhile, parts of California are expected to face extended stay-at-home orders amid a holiday surge in coronavirus cases there. Governor Gavin Newsom announcing yesterday that the orders would all but certainly be stretched into the new year as he and officials await the release of new ICU figures out today. The orders for the greater Sacramento and Bay Area were set to expire on January 1st and January 8th. Southwest Airlines says it won't furlough any employees after President Trump signed off on aid for the airlines as part of that $900 billion COVID relief package. Under the terms of the aid, airlines have to keep all of their employees on payroll through March 31st and will have to call back any who were furloughed in October. American United Airlines, which together furloughed 32,000 employees in October, say they will bring back those workers back temporarily. Some good news there. And those airlines did trade in positive territory in yesterday's trade. Now to Washington, where the House has signed off on a measure to boost stimulus checks up to $2,000. The measures, they now head to the Senate. NBC News' Chris Pallone is live in Washington with what happens next. Chris. Yes, Seema. Also, the House of Representatives voted to override a Trump veto for the first time in his presidency over a key military spending bill. Question now, as all eyes turn to the Senate, is well, whether Senate Republicans will back those bills or the president. A bipartisan rebuke for President Trump. The yeas are 322. The nays are 87. More than a two-thirds House majority voting to override his veto of the National Defense Authorization Act. The first time it's happened during the Trump presidency. Mr. Trump said he vetoed the bill because it would allow for the renaming of military bases which now honor Confederate military leaders and because it fails to strip liability protections from websites over what their users post. The bill is passed. The override followed a close vote in the House to increase coronavirus stimulus checks from $600 to $2,000, a move pushed by the president but backed by Democrats. Do you support the $2,000 Yes. This is not a stimulus. It is not. And it does nothing to help get people back to work. It sets up a test for Republicans in the Senate who generally oppose increasing the stimulus checks. I am telling Donald Trump, don't just talk about it, act. These Senate Republicans have followed you through thick and thin. Get them now to act and support the $2,000 checks. But there's no guarantee Majority Leader Mitch McConnell will even bring the measure to the Senate floor for a vote. And Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders says that he will object to block any vote on the Military Authorization Act 
veto override until the Senate takes up increasing those stimulus payments. The current Congress term ends on Sunday. Seema. Busy day ahead. Uh, Chris, thank you. And when we come back, an intensifying crackdown by China on Alibaba, what it could mean for your global investments next year. Plus, the best of the best when it comes down to the Dow in December. We're going to dissect some of the biggest winners. And later, what eventual easing COVID restrictions could mean for the wine and spirits industry. We're going to talk to one industry insider. A very busy hour still ahead on Worldwide Exchange. Don't go away. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. We have carved out some of the biggest stock winners this month. And here's what's interesting. They're not all from the stay-at-home sector. Let's start with Etsy. It's up about 12% in December, and shares have more than quadrupled this year. Etsy and other online marketplaces, such as Shopify, have been a lifeline to small businesses during the pandemic as they shift to focus to online sales. But shares of Disney up also up more than 20% this month and hovering near a 52-week high. That would have seemed unthinkable in one of the worst years imaginable for the theme park operator. But the stock has gained since Disney overhauled its media entertainment business in October to focus almost exclusively on producing streaming content for Disney+. Plus. ESPN Plus and Hulu. So that's been a winning trade. PVH is also up more than 20% this month. The clothing maker behind brands such as Tommy Hilfiger, Calvin Klein, reporting better than expected earnings earlier this month. But the company also said it expects fourth quarter revenue to decline as the pandemic will continue to hurt results. Now, one stock prompting all sorts of questions, Alibaba. The stock is rebounding today up 5% in Hong Kong, snapping six straight days of declines. However, analysts say these gains could be short-lived given that Chinese regulators have called for a shakeup of Alibaba's mobile payment and consumer finance business and group. They also warned that other large Chinese tech companies could come up against more scrutiny by the government, casting a dark cloud over investment investing in that sector. Let's talk a bit more about this as well as the environment for stocks and global markets going into the new year. Joining me is James Liu, founder and head of research at Clearnomics. It's good to see you this morning, James. Hi, thanks for having me, Seema. So I think one of the big questions out there is what we're seeing with Alibaba, the scrutiny it's facing from Chinese officials. Is this sort of just the beginning of more to come? Yeah, a lot of the scrutiny we're seeing in China right now, it's a reminder that there are political and social risks when investing in many of these regions. Of course, internationally, in emerging markets, and also specifically in China. The, the irony, though, is in the long run, these types of challenges are exactly the reason that emerging markets generally command a risk premium over developed markets like the U.S. Now, that hasn't really played out over the last decade, but investors who are able to basically ride out those types of risks and also grow with the businesses who, that are growing very rapidly there, they're able to take advantage of this. So in the short run, this is definitely a challenge. It's kind of a curveball. Unfortunately, we're seeing some of those regulatory hurdles here as well in the U.S. But in the long run, that's exactly why emerging market investors are rewarded. So is this just the beginning of a wider shakeup? And by the way, this is not the first time we've seen the Chinese take these type of actions. It was just a couple of years ago that where they went after and buying the insurance company HNA and uh, really pushed those two 
Chinese multinational firms to scale back their U.S. portfolio and actually resulted in H&A uh, to sell some of its ho hotels that it owned here in New York. I'm just curious if we could see ch China once again do the same thing with these Chinese tech companies. Yeah, it's not inconsistent with the tack they've taken in the past, like you mentioned. Uh, I guess the challenge with deciding whether or not this is actually a trend is that this one does seem to be fairly, you know, somewhat politically motivated, to, to, to say the least. And also, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen with some of, these, uh, some of the largest companies there that do have large financial and also social standing. So as of right now, it looks like they are targeting just, you know, these companies due to size and also social importance. That we expect to continue. It's hard to predict from that which companies they may target in the future and what that means for, you know, at the micro level for specific stocks. So right now it looks like, you know, this is something that probably will continue. It's very much in line with what they've done in the past. It's hard to draw a long-term conclusion. I think for overall investors, especially U.S.-based investors, they do have a much larger stake in China than they did in the past because of the inclusion of A shares. But that being said, it's still only 5% of the all-country world index. So while individual micro concerns like this are important, in the long run, it's still the reason that in investing in emerging markets commands a risk premium and why investors should stay invested in those areas. And who knows, maybe it actually gives light to some of the other companies that have found it you know, a bit more difficult to compete given the size, the sheer size and scale of Alibaba sort of dominating the digital landscape. Uh, but what, what do you also think this means for, 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 um, for Jack Ma, James? I mean, he's not only the founder of Alibaba and Ant, but he's sort of seen as the ambassador for Chinese businesses, the second wealthiest person in, in China. Uh, you know, where does this leave him, given this pressure he's facing now from Chinese officials? Yeah, so I can't speak to what it means for him specifically, but I think what it, what it does highlight is a difference between the way we like to kind of paint stories in the U.S. versus in China. In the U.S., I mean, generally speaking, the government has not gone after specific individuals, especially, you know, founders of large successful companies. They usually go after the companies themselves through, you know, regulation and antitrust measures like we're seeing today. So I think it just highlights yet another political and social risk of large companies in China. Um, right. And it just it is just more consistent. Uh, measures that we've seen over the last five to ten years of how that government likes to crack down on some of these companies. And James, just quickly, if it's not China where investors should look right now in the near term, where should they look? India, Brazil, Russia, what's the top trade? Yeah, so the, the question is, you know, around COVID-19, basically in the end, it looks like it's about two lost years of economic and global GDP growth. Right now, the f current forecast, both economically speaking and for corporate earnings, are that by the end of 2021, we'll generally have bounced back. So both internationally and domestically, we're already seeing a broadening out of performance. So those areas, those sectors and those countries that did really well, uh, either during the middle of the pandemic or as soon as things start to open up, we're already seeing that shift a little bit into other areas. So in the U.S. specifically, it's away from tech, uh, tech sectors, for instance, to you know sectors that were harder hit by COVID-19. And we think that'll probably continue into 2021. It's not going to happen smoothly because even with the vaccine, even with stimulus, there are a lot of you know, right. uh, fits and starts. And there are a lot of questions there. But we think that's the shift that will take place over the next two years as economic growth returns to pre-COVID levels. That's an interesting take. James, thanks for lending your expertise. James Liu. Great. Thanks, Seema. Still on deck here, the big business of baseball cards, how trading cards are becoming a hot commodity as people look for alternative investments. Yeah, you heard right. That story is up next. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where one travel comes in. 
With OneTravel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With OneTravel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit OneTravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it. Book it. Live it. One Travel. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings. And voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. Retail traders have increasingly taken an interest in diversified assets as they try to find new, unique ways to make money. And no, we're not talking about cryptocurrencies. That includes another childhood favorite, sports trading cards. Eric Chemi has a story. For Jimmy Mahan, former banker turned trading card shop owner, the pandemic has provided an unexpected boost to his Lexington, Kentucky small business. They can't go to the game. They can't do anything but watch it on TV. And now in the pandemic, it just created a focus on it. Former card collectors are getting back into the game, dusting off their old sets. And a new generation of modern collectors is emerging, looking for both quick flips and long-term investments. People are definitely viewing trading cards as an asset similar to those commodities. The big difference between trading cards and you know a lot of commodities is the fact that it's there's a finite amount of supplies. After years of declines, people are changing the way they price cards, similar to rare art and wine. But it's not just Bitcoin and gold coins seeing price spikes. Trading cards are becoming an asset class that can be worth big money. If you took the top 100 or so cards, 500 cards of tra in trading cards, they have beat the S&P 500 by 153% over a decade. I mean, that's not a small sample size. Just two weeks ago, Golden Auctions sold a Steph Curry rookie card for $611,000. A Giannis rookie card just sold for a record $1.8 Many collectors are putting together portfolios of cards across varying prices, as low as $100 and going well into the thousands. Warsop says the industry will make history this year with an expected value between one and a half and two billion dollars, the biggest in its history. They just increase in value over time, particularly if that player uh, performs on the court or on the field as a championship, for example, those cards continue to increase in value. Jimmy Mahan, the shop owner from the story, says even low-budget collectors can get started buying cards for less than $5. But unique limited collections with specifically numbered cards, those can easily range in the hundreds or thousands of dollars. Seema? Fascinating story, this resurgence and in interest in cards. I remember being a kid going to the local shopping mall in Oregon with my friends or cousins, and you'd buy that pack and hope that you'd get a Michael Jordan. I'm curious now, fast forward many years, are there now more uh, traditional sort of digital marketplaces where you can trade and buy and sell cards? Oh, definitely. So for one, just like what you mentioned in terms of opening those cards, the excitement, that's all becoming a huge thing on YouTube and social media. Everyone's videotaping, look at me buy this brand new set of card and let's see the surprise and let's open it up. So that's how they're hitting that modern generation. And you're right, there's a lot of digital trading. There are a lot of companies and now startups in, included 
where you can buy and sell these cards, but you never actually take physical ownership of them. They all exist almost like buying stocks on an exchange. You don't ever get that stock certificate. It lives electronically and you buy and sell it in the marketplace that way. That's certainly an innovation. And what are your thoughts on this, this you know, big demand for cards also coinciding with the big markup we've seen in Bitcoin and also you know, gold and silver, which have had a really good run this year? It's all part of that. It's all part of this push to hard assets, right? So you want something that's not a U.S. dollar. You want something that, in fact, might do better as the dollar gets weakened. These things are not correlated to the stock market. So you're definitely seeing people say, hey, if I'm not getting any interest rates, I'm not getting any dividend, I can put it in these things. One interesting thing with these cards, Panini, the CEO, was saying to us, they're starting to put these pricey commodities into the card. You can get pieces of gold, silver, diamond, platinum in the card. So they're trying to get a little bit of that market too. Hey, you buy a card, you get some commodity with it baked in. That may actually uh, maybe inspire me to get out there and look at those cards or at least find those cards I have in my parents' attic from when I was a kid. Eric, great story. Thank you for joining us this morning. Eric Chemi. Got it. Still on deck, Amazon seeing business boom with one of its lesser known divisions, how surging sales are helping wine and spirits and what Amazon is doing in the middle. And a programming note, check out the premiere of Sweets of Dreams with Marcus Limonis. The CEO and entrepreneur travels across the country, pulling back the curtain on the most iconic and influential streets that fuel America's most vital business cultures. The great show, that's tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern. Welcome back. I'm Seema Modi in for Brian Sullivan. We are halfway through the 5 a.m. hour here in New York. Here's, what's, here's where markets stand right now. Futures pointing to a higher open with the Dow up about 171 points. Hopes of an expanded stimulus package and positive vaccine trials fueling the rally on Wall Street. We saw the major averages climbing to fresh record highs yesterday, seeing gains of about half to nearly 1%. And the reopening trade got some love yesterday. Hotels, casinos, cruise lines, airlines, all ending, ending the day higher. In fact, the best performing stock yesterday was Carnival, the largest cruise line. But it wasn't gains across the board. The Russell 2000 giving back some of its gains, its first two-day losing streak since the middle of last month. However, the small cap index is still up nearly 20% for the year. Let's go worldwide now. Stocks in Asia closing mixed. The Shanghai falling about a half a percent, although we did see Alibaba rebound in today's trade. While Japan's Nikkei was the big winner, surging more than two and a half percent to hit its highest level since August of 1990. Wow. The Hang Seng and Kospi, the market in South Korea, also trading higher. Meanwhile, taking a closer look at trade in Europe following the lead of Wall Street's record highs yesterday. It's really green across the screen. The FTSE 100, the UK stock market getting a nice bump there uh, after that Brexit deal was closed before the holiday weekend. You can see stocks there higher by 2.3 percent. As 2020 comes to a close, the big winners in the overseas markets have been China's Shenzhen. That's sort of the Nasdaq of China. India's stock market and South Korea's stock market also up. All three are up about 14 percent or more this year thanks to stimulus. A weaker dollar also playing into the story as well. But did you know the worst performing global currency this year? Well, look no further than the Argentine peso. It's set to close out the year as the worst performing currency among emerging markets for the sixth year in a row COVID-19 posing a big threat to the country, just sort of exasperating the challenges that the government there is facing, already a tight budget. Add to that inflation concerns and a government that is still carving out its economic agenda. And you can see there uh, down 40 percent so far this year. 
Now to some of the morning's top stories, including a holiday bump for HBO Max. The streaming service adding 554,000 users between Friday and Sunday, with a record 244,000 downloads on Sunday alone. The jump coming amid the release of Warner Brothers' Wonder Woman 1984 on the app. According to market research firm Aptopia, HBO Max's total to subscribers now stands 12.6 million. Disney Plus also getting a Christmas boost. According to Sensor Tower, it added 2.3 million new users. That's a 28% spike from the prior weekend amid the release of the new Pixar film, Soul. Streaming services aren't the only companies getting a big bid here. According to Financial Times, Amazon's ad business is on the rise amid the ongoing pandemic. The paper citing data from facts that saying the United that will make $21 billion in revenue this year, a 47% jump from a year ago, helping it chip away business from advertising dominant players like Google. And U.S. air travel also seeing big numbers amid the Christmas holiday. The TSA says it will screen nearly 1.3 million passengers on Sunday, the sixth time in the past 10 days that the daily volume exceeded 1 million. That figure comes as Dr. Anthony Fauci warns that the widespread travel could help fuel a surge in new COVID cases. Sticking with air travel, a big day for Boeing as its 737 MAX jet resumes commercial flights in the U.S. This is a milestone. It comes nearly two years after a pair of deadly crashes involving the jet forced its grounding. CNBC's Phil LeBeau live in Miami where the first plane will be taking off in just a few hours. And Phil, stakes are high. They are, Seema, but I think most people at American Airlines, as well as at Boeing, they're ready to get this day behind them. American Airlines Flight 718 will be leaving here from Miami uh, later on this morning, a little after uh, 9.30. It goes up to New York, LaGuardia. Now, for American Airlines, they've been targeting this day really almost from the beginning of uh, December. That's when, shortly after the FAA ungrounded the 737 MAX, they then did a media flight where they said to reporters, look at the changes that have been made in the plane. The pilots have gone through enhanced training. And as a result, this is the first commercial revenue flight of the 737 MAX here in the United States in 636 days. What we're seeing with American is what we're going to be seeing with three other airlines over the next several months. So you look at the airlines that are flying the, three, the 737 MAX that have it in the fleet or will have it in the fleet. You've got American starting flights today, United on February 11th, and then Alaska and Southwest have both said they'll start flying the MAX in March. For American Airlines, it has 24 MAX planes in its fleet. As you take a look at shares of American over the last month, now they're not all immediately flying today. They're going to gradually feather these into uh, the system over the next several months. As for Boeing, this has been a big month for the 737 MAX. Remember, they have logged 98 max orders, new max orders this month, SEMA, after 11 straight months where they lost more than 1,000 orders for the 737 MAX. The hope at Boeing is that this is the beginning of saying, okay, it's bottomed out. Now we can grow orders for the 737 MAX from here. And again, that first flight, SEMA, it starts Oh, a little after 9.30 this morning, that's when we're going to board and then come up to LaGuardia. Wow, what a story. And Phil, from what I understand, you will be on the plane. Uh, anything out of the ordinary I on will. this flight? Will passengers be aware that, you know, how, how big of a moment this really is for Boeing? Oh, they're aware. I mean, look, when, when you are being ticketed, it says when you get your boarding pass, it's 737 MAX 8. That's the plane that we're going to be boarding. 
Most of the people on this flight, my guess is, they are what we would call av geeks, people who are like, look, I want to be on the first flight for the 737 MAX. There are probably also some quote-unquote regular customers. We'll be talking with some of them. Uh, once you get past today, Seema, I think the hope for American Airlines is that this is just a normal flight, and this is the beginning of daily service for the MAX between New York and Miami. Well, we'll be looking to you for updates throughout the day. Phil, thank you for joining us today. Phil LeBeau in Miami. And for more on the return of the 737 MAX and what it means for Boeing, let's bring in John Revive, Senior Analyst and Vice President at Aerospace and Defense at Citi. Uh, pleasure to have you on today, John. Uh, from an investor point of view, you know, what will you be looking for in, to, in today's flight, the 737 MAX, back in the air? Thanks, Seema, um, and good morning. Well, you know, the, uh, the point here is that uh, there was a certain amount of inevitability to the MAX flying again, although it's clearly been a very long period of inevitability. So really the focus at this point is making sure the MAX goes back in the air without a hitch and all the systems that have been redesigned and redeveloped are, are, are properly done so, and that's probably going to be the case here. And as Phil said, over time, the MAX will replace the NG, and that should be done with it. So you really want to see a flawless re-entry into service, which is a challenge given all of the uh, groundings that have got, the, the, the lengthy grounding that, we, that what we've gone through. But, uh, but clearly a, a positive day. Um, for, for Boeing, the company, to get this thing back flying in the United States. Boeing has had its fair share of headlines, but none like the ones revolving around the 737, 737 MAX over the last two years. Uh, the grounding, Dennis Mullenberg, uh, then you think they brought in Dave Calhoun. The pandemic, it's really been nonstop. Set the scene for us. I mean, how big of a moment is this for Boeing and for its profit picture, which certainly has suffered recently because of the pandemic? Well, I mean, quite frankly, getting, again, as I, as I said, the, the, getting the plane back flying in the United States was a certain amount of inevitability to it, especially after the FAA um, uh, released the grounding last month. Um, so, so sentiment-wise, I think this has been a long time coming, but I emphasize a long time coming. The problems and the challenges do persist thereafter, and we still have a, almost a record, uh, inven uh, record production rate ramp up over the next year plus on the inventory to clear out um, 787 um, production to move. Um, so, and also a pro portfolio to, uh, to, to readdress um, in terms of this competitiveness versus Airbus at the high end of the narrow body. So I'd say that there's still a lot of things, a lot of wood for Boeing to chop. This is one step along a very long path. Yeah, and airlines also face the challenge of getting travelers uh, you know, comfortable getting on the flight. There was a recent study sort of, you know, getting interest, gauging interest in, from the public on whether they feel comfortable getting on a 737 MAX. How do you see that playing out over the coming months? You know, to, to, to some extent, I think that the bigger news of COVID, which has clearly had a global impact on, on travel, um, has somewhat overshadowed the specific MAX issues. I mean, it's almost hard to believe that it's been as long as it has been that the MAX has been grounded. Um, so I, I would expect that folks would, over time, I would say, grow increasingly comfortable with the MAX if it, is proven to play, uh, if it is proven to fly well and reliably in the air. And you would think that after this long of a grounding and this much work that's gone into rectified, that that would indeed be the case. Um, there could be some intransigence um, among customers around flying the MAX initially, but quite frankly, that period coincides with intransigence among customers to fly initially, just given the state of the world, the pandemic viral spikes across the, uh, across the nation, across the globe. Um, so it's going to be hard, I think, to, to sort of pull apart those two items. And, you know, when you see a broader error recovery could coincide with the time that that folks generally um, are more comfortable in general um, flying on the max. But I think that I think you'll still find um, a lot of folks willing to fly on the max even yeah. today if they want to fly at all. 
And following this flight, you have United saying they plan to do sometime in the next three months. Southwest anticipating to do so in the spring to bring that, bring that 737 MAX to air. Uh, what does this mean for some of the other suppliers, you know, even General Electric? I'm thinking they, of course, specialize in that LEAP engine. Yeah, so, so the challenge of the MAX grounding for the entire time of the grounding since March of 2019 has been creating some production stability um, in the system. And clearly that there's been a lot of dynamics around there, only um, exacerbated by, by COVID, COVID, excuse me. So getting the plane certified again is a good step to get some certainty for the airlines to start demanding the aircraft, which will help clear the inventory, which will help raise production rates, which is good for the supply chain like GE, like Spirit Aerosystems. Um, and, and many others, quite frankly. Um, I think one of the challenges, however, is getting the plane flying, and that's great, but pre-pandemic, the case was we need as many planes as we can because demand is quite insatiable for these planes. Post-pandemic, or I'd say in pandemic, there's not as much demand for airplanes, not as much demand for capacity or lift. So what, turned, so what, what, was, what was strictly a supply issue pre-pandemic is now a bit of a demand issue. So you still have to apply, so you still have to think about the demand issue in aerospace, in travel. Yeah. And that's the little piece that has to fall into place. And those latest TSA numbers, you know, whether public officials agree with it or not, um, demand certainly seems to be climbing here for, for air travel. John, thank you for joining us today, breaking down today's big event with Boeing. John Raviv of City. And coming up, pivoting amid the pandemic, the changes the wine and spirits industry has to made, has had to make to stay afloat amid continued lockdowns. Think about virtual tastings. But first, as we head to break, some of the other top stories, the House proving a bill to increase the second round of COVID stimulus checks to $2,000. The Republican-held Senate is not expected to pass the measure, though Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer says he will push for a vote. The Trump administration ramping up its rhetoric with China, bolstering its order, barring U.S. investments in China. The Treasury Department releasing guidance on the November executive order released, adding exchange-traded funds and index funds to the list. And the FDA issuing new rules for commercial drone use to safeguards and intended for the eventual widespread use of the devices for small package delivery. Worldwide Exchange, we're back in a few. Live pictures of Times Square with a ball getting ready to drop in just two days. But let's reflect and look back at some of the biggest stock movers of the year, the work and play home space. Zoom, take a look at this stock, which became everyone's go-to for video conferencing and chats, up nearly 420% this year. Peloton continues to be in high demand by consumers and investors, up more than 430%. The stocks are going, though, in different directions this month. Zoom is down more than 25% in December, and it's off about 40% from its highs. Peloton, though, continues to post gains, up about 30% this month. The company announcing a deal just last week to buy Precor, which adds more manufacturing capacity as it struggles to keep up with demand and investors seem to like that move. Meantime, it's been a tough go for businesses big and small during the pandemic this year. Many have had to pivot quickly to a digital strategy, adapting to lockdown measures and other local, state and national restrictions. One sector, though, that's managed to thrive, wine and spirits. Online sales of alcohol in the U.S. are expected to grow by more than 80 percent this year to nearly $5.6 billion, according to market research firm ISWR. In other countries, such as France, Germany, China and Australia, e-commerce sales for spirits are forecasted to rise about 40 percent. So let's dig into this. 
John Capon, chairman of Acker Wines, the oldest wine shop in America, operating since 1820. Joining us now, John, pleasure to have you on. There's a lot of things consumers, you know, couldn't really do this year, attend concerts, you know, really go to a movie theater, sporting events. But if there's one thing they could do is drink at home. What I want to understand from you is how strong was demand? Well, for us, we've had our best year ever. We uh, feel very fortunate and very blessed. Uh, revenues were up 33 uh, percent this year. We sold over 100 and 22 million at auction. We do wine auctions and wine retail. Retail was over 20 million. So we've had a record year, 143 million in sales and uh, the best year ever for any wine auction house. And what, how have preferences changed because of the pandemic? Are consumers opting for wine that is priced, you know, less than $30 or are they actually going uh, to more higher end names? Uh, what, what are you seeing this year? Well, we specialize in, in the fine and rare wine market, what is like the commodities of the world of wine. So that market has been as strong as ever, and, and sales and demand have continued to increase, um, especially with people at home looking for fun things to do. And, and wine is a passion for most people. It's also a great investment, but it's also something that they enjoy. And um, with people kind of not going on vacation, not traveling around the world, not going out to find restaurants, they have all this additional income, and a lot of them are putting it into wine. But for those who don't know wine as well, they may not be a wine connoisseur, how do you make them feel confident that they're making the right purchase online, having not tried the wine beforehand? Well, we provide a lot of information. We have a great sales force and sales team. I mean, there are great wines, whether it's $10 a bottle or 10000 a bottle, and it's just a question of dealing with somebody that you are comfortable with and, and confident with. And that's, uh, you know, who we are as America's oldest wine shop. We have, uh, we've been doing this 200 years. It's our 200th anniversary, actually. So uh, we can kind of provide that comfort to uh, those that, that shop with us. And virtual tastings from one, what I understand. How does that work? Well, basically, we did what the, the rest of the world did and got on Zoom. Uh, we have a very proactive uh uh, philosophy of opening up a lot of wines with a lot of clients. And, uh, you know, of course, we couldn't do that. So the idea came up, hey, let's do these tastings on Zoom. And before you know it, we were having some of the greatest winemakers uh, join us in the world and, and people could tune in and, and share and open up their own wine. And we would all kind of drink together two or three times a week. And it became a, a great way to connect and stay connected with our clients. You know, earnings reports from some of the bigger alcohol players, whether it's Anheuser-Busch, Sam Adams, they really talked a lot about how millennials and Gen Z are gravitating towards hard seltzer, White Claw, among other brands. I'm wondering if that's a competition uh, or a threat to your business, the wine, the wine business. Uh, no, the, the, the people and producers that we deal uh, and have been over for uh, decades and centuries, and like I said, they're the real commodities in the world of wine, like, Brands like Domaine de la Romani Conti, Chateau Lafitte, Rothschild. I mean, these names have been around for, uh, you know, hundreds of years. And um, people will always want the best, no matter when times are bad or times are great. People want the best uh, that there is to offer. And that's what our specialty is. Good or bad, you still want a good drink. John, thank you for joining us today. John Capon with a look at how the wine and spirits industry is faring during this pandemic. Thank All right, you. on deck, stocks look to keep the records coming, but our next guest says that turbulence could be lurking in the new year. And if you haven't already, subscribe to our new podcast, Worldwide Exchange, every day in audio form. If you miss us, check us out, Spotify or other podcast apps. We are on there, and we will be right back.
Welcome back. Turning back to the broader market, stocks looking to keep the momentum going as futures are pointing to a higher open. This after all three major indices hit new record highs yesterday. But our next guest says a quick correction could be awaiting in the new year. Nate Fisher, chief investment strategist at Strategic Wealth Partners, joins us now. Nate, good morning to you. Uh, why do you think a correction is in the cards and what will take us there? So right now the market has a lot of momentum. The breadth is widened out. Uh, and, and we've come a long way since March. So when I look at a few things, I'm looking at the S&P 500. It's about 17% above its 200-day moving average. Look at the small cap stocks. The Russell 2000 is about 33% above the, the long-term trend, the 200-day moving average. So there is some room for the market to come down. I'm not saying that we're essentially going to the bull runs coming to an end, but there, there's room for this market to digest the gains that we've made the last nine months, consolidate, and then make the next leg higher. And there's still some things going on in the market for the first half of the year that need to play out as we look into the back half of the year. The vaccine needs to come into May and June, and then we need to essentially have a lot of, of good news play out for the EPS number to be hit in 2021. Right now, the street's at 170, which is well above the 164 number that was a record number in 2019. Yeah, we have come a long way. In fact, if you had told me back in March that we would be sitting at record highs at the end of this year while millions of Americans had lost their jobs, the economic divide only widening, I would have said there, there, there's no way. Uh, when do you think the market starts playing, paying more attention to the real economy? So that, that's it's a tale of two things right now, Main Street versus Wall Street. Wall Street tends to look at things, you know, 18 to 24 months out and discount those things. Right now, Main Street is hurting. Small businesses are being destroyed by COVID. The jobs numbers that we're printing every week, 800,000, we didn't even see those numbers during the financial crisis. So there's a lot of wood to chop on, on the economic front to get those two streets to essentially come together and pair up. The $900 billion stimulus bill getting the head nod from President Trump, that seemed to be the catalyst behind yesterday's market outperformance. What do you, what, what's in focus today as this bill heads to Senate? And uh, you know, how much room does this leave the Biden administration as they try to come up with their own economic policy and stimulus efforts when they enter the White House come January? So the, the $900 billion package, I guess you could pretty much say is, is signed and delivered. I don't think that's not going to happen. That essentially helps us bridge the gap in Q1, which the economic data was looking weak. The consumer data was starting to roll over. We just mentioned the jobs data is still not good. The divided government that we're most likely going to have after we see these, these runoffs in Georgia means that we still have gridlock. And gridlock is not good when we have a, a pandemic crisis that we're still working our way through. As far as the Biden administration goes, I think they're going to be more prone to be stimulative, but also when you look at their economic plan, they're not as pro-growth as the Trump administration will be. So we're going to have pros and cons to each, each ad administration, but at the end of the day, no major changes are going to happen when we have a divided government. So I still think the stocks are going to be a good place to be, specifically U.S. stocks in the near term. You know, a month ago we were talking about how those Georgia runoffs will be a big risk for this market, but yet with the market sitting at record highs, that would suggest people are sort of ignoring that. Why do you think that is, and how closely are you watching it in January? So, so I, I'm, that's, that's one of my main things I'm looking for in January. I don't think that the Republicans lose both, both seats. I think the base case right now and the betting odds are looking at about 75% chance that the Senate remains Republican. So that looks like a split down in Georgia. And as I just mentioned, that's more status quo. Looking to stock-specific stories, Boeing, a big moment today with the company uh, and the 737 MAX going to air with American Airlines from Miami to New York. Um, I'm looking at the stock and how it's traded over the last 
two to three months. Uh, despite the challenges it's faced, now with TSA suggesting holiday travel is starting to rebound uh, and now a growing optimism about next year and what the vaccine will bring. Uh, you know, where does the stock go from here now trading at 218 a share? I think Boeing is one of those um, at the scene type of accident crashes stocks where they were one of the best stories in aerospace for you know, decades. And then all of a sudden the 737 accidents happened. They had to ground the plane and then COVID hit. So they were hit by a perfect storm. It's going to take years, in my opinion, for this stock to get back onto the free cash flow earnings trajectory that it was at. So at 218, like you said, it doesn't look very, very like, like a great buying opportunity right here. I would play the derivative play if production is really going to wrap back up on that. I like Spirit Aerosystems, SPR. They make the body for the plane. So that would be a play that I would look into more so than just Boeing by itself. Yeah, the Spirit Aerosystems and then GE, which makes the Leap engine. Do you have a top airline pick? Uh, Our our number one aerospace play right now would be Raytheon. So when they merged with United, uh, you get, you know, the essentially their their engine in Pratt Whitney, you get their aftermarket products, and then you get the defense business uh, to diversify with the Raytheon acquisition that they did as well. And it pays about 3% dividends. That's an aerospace name we like right here. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation. Nate, pleased to have you on today. Thanks for joining us. Nate Fisher. And airlines right now are part of the story uh, in pre-market trade with American Air United, all trading higher by around 1%. That does it for us on Worldwide Exchange. Thank you for joining me today. Squawk Box is next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton, for the stay.